We've spent the last several weeks focusing on Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6, verses 26 to 59. His explanation of the feeding of the 5,000 and what that signified. He gave them bread as a sign, just as bread sustains our physical lives. Jesus says that what represents me. I'm the bread that gives you spiritual life. He explains that's the meaning of the sign. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. He says it plainly and non-metaphorically. And then he says, eat and drink of my flesh and my blood. Meaning the same thing. Believe in me. That's just a metaphorical way of saying the same thing. This has been the thrust of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6, 26 to 59. Today and for the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, we will focus in on the people's response to Jesus' teaching. So let us first, in, in looking at John chapter 6, 60 to 65 this morning, let us first review the claims that Jesus has made so far in greater detail and specificity. And then let's consider the people's response to these claims in the five verses that we're looking at today. And then let's consider what Jesus says about their response in John chapter 60 verses, pardon me, in John chapter 6 verses 60 to 65. So by way of review, in the verses prior to 60, Jesus claims three things, to be greater than Moses, to be the source of eternal life, and that he will give his flesh for the world as the means of being the source of eternal life. So let's look at each of those in a little bit closer detail. Prior to verse 60, Jesus claims to be greater than Moses. This is an implicit claim. By that I mean we can't turn to a verse where Jesus says, I am greater than Moses. It's not there. But look at 31 and 32. The people bring up Moses in verses 31 and 32. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're saying, what sign do you do, Jesus? If you want us to follow you like our fathers followed Moses then it only stands to reason that you should do something at least as good as Moses, if not better. And so, are you as good as Moses? Is the thrust of their question, or pardon me, the thrust of their statement in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus responds to them by stating that, first of all, it wasn't really Moses who gave you bread to eat, but God. This is what he says in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So don't elevate Moses higher than is warranted, is the implication of this. Don't get too focused and fixated on Moses. These people were so proud. They're always quoting, or or not not quoting, they're always alluding to or, or referencing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. These people were so proud to be descendants of these 
great heroes of the faith, as it were. And so here they are talking now, though, to the Son of God, about how great Moses is. And so Jesus is, as it were, just reminding them, it actually wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven to eat, but it was God. So first of all, don't elevate Moses higher than is warranted. Second, Jesus goes on to explain to them that he is the bread which the bread that Moses gave prefigured. Look at verse 35. After saying, my father gives you the true bread from heaven, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So let's, let's talk about Moses and the bread Moses gave for a moment. I think most of us are familiar enough with the history here. The people of God left Egypt and they were wandering through the wilderness and God fed them miraculously through Moses with manna from heaven to eat. Moses didn't sustain the people's life in the wilderness, strictly speaking. The bread did. If the people had Moses, but not the bread, they would have died in the wilderness. And so in that sense, the bread Moses gave them was greater than Moses himself. Because Moses actually did not give them life, you understand. The bread gave them life. And so as pertains to life-giving power, the bread was greater than Moses. But Jesus says, My flesh is true food, and my blood true drink. And in verse 32 he says, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he's saying that that bread that Moses gave, which in 48, or pardon me, 49, the people ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. And again in verse 58, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Jesus is explaining here that that bread wasn't true bread. Otherwise, those people who ate it would still be alive. That bread can't ultimately give life. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And if you eat this bread, you will live forever. If you eat that bread, the manna in the wilderness, you will die. As all of that generation did. But if you eat me, who is the true bread, you will never die. You will have eternal life. So let's follow the logic then. In terms of life-giving power, the manna in the wilderness is greater than Moses. And Jesus is greater than the manna. And so this is an implicit claim that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is, in fact, one-upping Moses... By giving himself as bread to the people. These people say, if you want us to follow you like those people followed Moses, you better do something at least as good as him. And Jesus says, he gave you bread which prefigured what I am. So Jesus claims implicitly to be greater than Moses. 
Secondly, Jesus claims in the verses prior to 60 to be the source of eternal life. This is so evident and obvious that I'm hardly going to spend any time on this. We've unpacked it thoroughly over the last several weeks and it's so patently biblical that all you have to do is read the passage for yourself and see that Jesus does claim to be the source of eternal life. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Verse 40, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. 47. Whoever believes has eternal life. 48. I am the bread of life. Uh, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... Namely me, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. 57. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It's utterly inescapable. Jesus claims so obviously, so plainly in this passage to be the source of eternal life. If you want eternal life, you have to deal with Jesus. You cannot miss that. You might disagree with Jesus... If you did, you'd be wrong. But you you might disagree with Jesus, but you cannot misunderstand Jesus in John chapter 6. He is very clearly stating that if you want eternal life, you get it through me by dealing with me. That's all I'm going to say about that for now, because it's so obvious and so plain. And as I say, we've dealt with it at length in the last number of sermons on this passage. That's the second claim. So Jesus claims to be greater than Moses. He claims to be the source of eternal life. And then thirdly, he claims in the verses prior to 60 that he will give his flesh for the world as the means of providing eternal life. So how, Jesus, how will you give eternal life to people? Well, Jesus says, In verse 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus is claiming that the means by which he will give people eternal life is by somehow offering up his flesh. All these people who heard him could likely have ascertained at the time that Jesus spoke these words was that Jesus was saying in some way that his body and blood and their partaking of his body and blood would mean eternal life for them. All these original hearers could have ascertained is that in some way Jesus is going to give up his body and blood and that somehow we need to come to partake of his body and blood in order to have a share in him and in this eternal life that he's talking about. 
No doubt that is somewhat of a mysterious statement in its historical context. No, no doubt it was, pardon me, somewhat of a mysterious statement in its historical context. The people could have known from listening to Jesus that they had to believe in him, that they had to trust in him, and that he was going to give up his flesh for them, and that somehow they needed to trust in, partake in by faith, what he did in giving up his flesh. But what exactly that meant, no doubt that was somewhat cryptic at this time. But though they may not have known it then, we know now, of course... That Jesus meant the cross. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. How can we not hear, as we spoke about last week, Jesus' primary referent here was not the Lord's table, but that which is likewise signified by the Lord's table. This passage and the Lord's table speak to the same reality. That Jesus' body was broken for you. And Jesus' blood was shed for you. And if you believe, if you eat of Jesus and drink of Jesus, again we talked about last week, not the table. You don't live by external participation in this sacrament. But if you eat of Jesus and drink of Jesus, what does that mean? Again, uh, Augustine or Augustine, believe and you have eaten. If you will believe in Jesus' body broken for you, if you will believe in Jesus' blood shed for you, you will live. That's what Jesus teaches in John 6, and that's also what the Lord's table teaches us. How can we read this passage and not think of the cross? Not have those words, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, in our minds when Jesus says, the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We were lepers, so to speak. Our flesh was decaying, rotting, worse than lepers, corpses. Go dig somebody up who's been under for a few weeks. This was our situation outside of Christ Jesus. We had... A disease of the blood, so to speak. Not only was our flesh not good, but our blood was not good. We ought to have obeyed God as the human race in all that He commanded us. He has jurisdiction over us as our Creator. Who can argue with that? Who can seriously make the case that the creature owes no obedience to its creator. We owed God our obedience simply by virtue of being creations. But moreover, God entered into a covenant with Adam 
whereby He commanded Him to obey. And reward was implicitly promised for obedience, and death was explicitly threatened upon the breach of that covenant. And so we, we owed God obedience by way of that covenant also. But Adam broke that covenant. Again, most of us know this. Genesis chapter 3. Adam failed to do what he should have done. Which was crush the serpent's head. Don't talk to my wife like that. Don't come around here telling lies like that. And there and then he should have crushed the serpent's head. He should have clung to God, his not only his maker but his covenant God in fidelity, in loyalty, in obedience. Sin is more than just avoiding bad things, you know. It's loving God with heart, soul, strength, and mind. Adam ought to have done that. But he did not. And he did what he ought not to have done. He took of it from his wife and ate. And in Adam's sin, all of us were plunged into a state of guilt and corruption. And so, our flesh, our blood, so to speak, in spiritual terms, became diseased, rotting, rotted. But Jesus came to do that which we ought to have done in the first. To avoid that which we have done but ought not to have. Jesus came to be a substitute law keeper. And then on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved for our sin. And so, it's as if on the cross, Jesus took upon Himself the rottenness of our flesh and the diseased blood that runs through our veins. And bore the curse of God in Himself that we deserved and gave us new flesh, new blood, life. Jesus lived and died with healthy flesh and blood as a substitute for those with diseased flesh and blood. And He gives us life in the place of our death. And whoever believes in Jesus finds that our legal record is changed. God justifies us, though we are still sinners. God doesn't justify us or not justify us on the basis of our works, but God justifies us on the basis of Christ's work. So even though we are still technically sinners, we're justified because of what Christ has done for us. And we come into a new relationship with God, and God takes out 
what the Bible calls a heart of stone and puts in its place a heart of flesh, changes our actual nature, giving us, so to speak, new flesh and new blood. It makes us new. There's a legal change. There's a qualitative change. For all of it stems from Christ's saving work, that His body was broken for us, His blood was shed for us, that He suffered and died under the wrath of God, was numbered with the transgressors, and they made His grave with the wicked. Jesus claims prior to verse 60 of John chapter 6 that He will give His flesh for the world as a means of providing eternal life. It's, this claim is inextricably linked to the cross. So Jesus claims to be greater than Moses. He claims to be the source of eternal life. And He claims that the manner in which He will give eternal life is by living, dying, on a cross having his grave made with the wicked, being numbered with the transgressors, and then rising after having paid all. And that by his life, death, resurrection, by that means, including the cross, by that means, he will give us eternal life. These are the claims that Jesus has made of himself prior to verse 60 of John chapter 6. And in response to these claims, the people begin to manifest unbelief. Look in verse 64. Jesus says, there are some of you who don't believe. This refers not to the openly unbelieving, if there were any among them. But this refers instead to those, some of those who were ostensibly believing in Christ Jesus up to that point. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, Carson notes that just as there is faith and then there is faith in John, so there are disciples and there are disciples in John. John intentionally talks about those who believed, but then as he goes on, he shows, well, they didn't really believe. John also terms some people disciples, but then as he goes on, he shows, well, they're not really disciples. This is what's happening here. Jesus is saying, look, some of you disciples do not believe. These unbelievers, though they claim to be believing disciples, they are unbelievers. And these unbelievers say essentially in verse 60, this is hard to believe. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It's hard to believe that Jesus is greater than Moses. It's hard to believe that He is the source of eternal life. 
And it's hard to believe that the manner in which, the means by which He will give us eternal life will have something to do with the offering up of His flesh. This is hard to believe. After all, by way of review, going back to verse 30, there's not enough evidence. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? How about feeding the 5,000? Was that not enough? You see, the day after Jesus fed the 5,000, these people come. What sign do you do? What work do you perform? See, there's this ostensible excuse, not enough evidence. These are the, these are the people responding to Jesus here. Or, too much counter evidence. Remember verse 42. Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? Whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? There's not enough evidence to believe that he's greater than Moses. That he's the source of eternal life. That he's going to give up his flesh for the world. How could that be anyway? Because he's Joseph and Mary's boy. He didn't come from heaven. This is the mindset of these people here. The identity of Jesus is hard to believe. The means of Jesus' fulfillment of these claims that He's making is hard for them to believe. These people were only willing to follow Jesus so far. Follow Him around and listen to His teaching? Okay. Get free bread? Okay. Believe that He is greater than Moses, that He is the source of eternal life, and that the means by which He gives eternal life has something to do with His body and blood? Nah. That's a bridge too far. This is what unbelief often looks like. Not necessarily open rejection and hostility. Sometimes it looks like following Jesus around and listening to His teaching. Remember, these people are called in verse 60, disciples. They weren't true disciples, but they were ostensible disciples, visible disciples. They appeared to be disciples following Jesus around. No doubt, if you had asked them, while they were on their way to Capernaum. Why are you going to see Jesus? No doubt they would have had some good words to say about Jesus. Some measure of acceptance of Jesus. But they were not willing to accept Jesus' testimony about Himself to His person and His work. In Barbados we have... This phenomena of cultural Christianity, which used to be the case in Canada as well, it's not anymore. Canada is a very secular nation now. But most in Barbados would think of this nation as being a Christian nation. But listen, cultural, mere cultural Christianity is unbelief. 
mere cultural Christianity is unbelief. There may be prayer in schools, prayer at public events, but is there prayer around the dinner table? Is there private prayer in the prayer closet? We may call ourselves a Christian nation, but a a nation is comprised of individuals and families. How many individuals in Barbados are walking closely with God in trust and obedience? How many parents are raising their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? The Bible is good, people might say, but how many have read it? let alone believed it, how many have read it from cover to cover? Oh, I didn't even know Obadiah was in the Bible. Prayer is good. Prayer is good, people might say. That's why we include it in our public functions. But do you pray? Do you get down on your knees and speak words of adoration to the God of the universe? Do you humbly, contritely confess your sins and plead for His mercy and grace in Christ Jesus? Do you petition Him to supply your needs? Do you yield to Him in obedience? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Everyone and their brother likes to claim, I am God's child. Well, if so, do you obey your father? There is much unbelief in this nation masquerading as Christianity. There are many in this nation like these disciples here who are willing to follow Jesus only so far, but not further. To take the name of Christian, to check the box on the census, to support prayer in schools or prayer at public events, to have a good word to say about Jesus or the Bible or the gospel, to refrain from cussing as you walk past the church building. Sure, that much Jesus, that much Christianity. But... When it comes to who He is, that He is the source of eternal life, and that the bread that He will give for the life of the world is His flesh, and you must eat, and you must drink. Nah. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It's a bridge too far. Of merely culturally Christian Bajans, and these unbelievers in this passage before us today, We might say, as God indicted the people of old, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus indicts this attitude of this far but no further as unbelief. He doesn't call them weak believers, he calls them unbelievers. Some of you disciples do not believe. So Jesus makes claims 
And these people begin to manifest unbelief. They're not yet ready to openly call for His crucifixion. Note that. In John chapter 6, they're not yet ready to openly call for His crucifixion. They're actually... They appear to be, they are apparently His followers or His disciples. But they are only willing to follow Him so far. Intellectually, morally, spiritually, there is a point at which accepting Jesus' testimony to His own personhood and His work is too much for them. This is what unbelief very often looks like even today. Jesus responds in three ways to their unbelief. First, he intensifies his claims about himself. Look at verses 61 and 62. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, if you can't even handle this little bit of a portrait of my glory, of my exaltation, of the importance of who I am and the absolute necessity of my work. If you can't even handle this little bit that I'm telling you, what then when you see me exalted to the Father's right hand? What then when you see me coming on the clouds with glory to judge the living and the dead? If you're offended at this, how much more offended are you going to be at that? Jesus intensifies His claims about himself here. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus did in time give his flesh as bread for the life of the world. Tasting death, as Hebrews says, for everyone. Jesus did ascend to where he was before and lives forevermore to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. In his exalted state, ascended to where he was before. Jesus remains until He shall return to put that last enemy, which 1 Corinthians 15 says is death, under His feet. And to make all things new. To descend with the new Jerusalem from above. To rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth. Where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus intensifies His claims about Himself. He doesn't back off and say, I'm getting a little bit carried away. What I meant was, Jesus says, if you are offended by me saying I'm the bread of life and you need me to live, and that I'm going to go give my flesh for you, and that you need my flesh in order to live, if you find that that's a little bit too much for you to swallow, what then when you see the tomb opened and empty on the third day? What then when I appear to 500 brothers all at once and manifest to themselves my resurrected body? What then when I appear behind locked doors to the disciples who are quivering with fear and show them the marks in my hands and in my side. What then when I ascend to heaven and you see me go and then the angels say, why are you staring 
up there. Get to work. And He's going to come back the same way you saw Him go. If you find John chapter 6 a little bit too hard to swallow, imagine just how it's going to blow your mind when you see Christ in His resurrected and exalted glory. So that's the first thing He does, is He intensifies His claims about Himself. The second thing He does is He identifies their unbelief. We've already looked at this, verse 64. Some of you do not believe. Those, these are the facts, some of you do not believe. Some then did not believe. Even today, some do not believe. But as we considered earlier in the service, your belief or your unbelief has nothing to do with the objectivity of the facts. You may not believe in gravity, but you're still going to fall down. You may not believe in bacteria because you can't see it with your own eyes. (laughs) Because you can't perceive it with your five senses unaided. You might not believe in it, but you're still going to get sick. You may not believe that Jesus is the bread of life. You may not believe that the means by which Jesus is going to give life to the world is by the offering of His flesh on the cross. You may not believe that. You may not believe that you need to eat of Christ Jesus. You may not believe that you need to drink of Christ Jesus. You may not believe that. You may not believe that after He died and was in the grave, three days He was raised. You may not believe that He ascended. You may not believe that He ever lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through Him. You may not believe that He's going to come back the way we saw Him go. You may not believe that His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion shall be from shore to shore. You may not believe that. You may not believe that one day the dwelling place of God will be with man. You may not believe that one day He will wipe away every tear from the eyes of His people. But that makes no difference. It's still true. And as we saw earlier in the service, that's good news for us. The unbelief of the scoffing world around us. The rebellion of the world around us. Let us gather ourselves together against the Lord and against His anointed. Makes no difference because God tells of His decree. I have set my King in Zion. Some of you do not believe, Jesus says here. But He says implicitly, I am going to ascend to where I was before. Nevertheless, and if you find it hard to swallow what I'm telling you right now, just wait till you see that, and that's going to blow your mind. So Jesus intensifies his claims about himself, he identifies their unbelief, and then he identifies the source of their unbelief, namely their own natural faculties. Look at verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
It's as if Jesus shakes his head here and says, There's no shortcoming in the words that I've spoken to you. The words are spirit and life. There's no untruth that I've spoken to you. Everything's true, and in fact, and then some. Because not only this, but also that, I'm going to ascend where I was before. So there's no shortcoming here on my end. The fact that you do not believe. Is dumbfounding. But it just goes to show. The flesh is of no help at all. The spirit must give life. Saying the flesh is no help at all. Is not a concession of irrationality. In other words, you can't use reason to help you believe in Jesus. Rather, it's an indictment of our actual use of reason in religious matters. It's not as if Jesus is saying, you've got to stop thinking about it and just believe. That's not what Jesus is saying here when he says the flesh is of no help at all. He is speaking about their natural faculties, the flesh. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Their natural selves. But he's not conceding that you've got to stop thinking about it and just take a leap in the dark. Rather, he's indicting our actual use of reason in religious matters, the way that we naturally reason in religious matters. The problem with the unbeliever is not that he cannot rationally conclude the truth about Jesus. Again, what sign do you perform? What work do you do? There's this pretense of rationality. You just, have, you just haven't given us enough evidence. Never mind that the very day before he fed 5,000. The problem with the unbeliever is not that he cannot, because of his brain power or his intellect, rationally put two and two together and conclude the truth about Jesus. The Bible, to believe the Bible is rational and is manifestly rational. The problem with the unbeliever then, pardon me, and the unbeliever is not less intelligent than the believer. It's not as if they have a few less brain cells than the believer. So the problem with the unbeliever is not then that he cannot rationally conclude the truth about Jesus because of some defect in his own ability to think or because of some defect with the rationality of the argument. The problem with the unbeliever is that he is pre-committed to irrationality in religious matters. And this is not an intellectual issue, but a moral one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 14, we read that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. 
King James says, does not accept the things of God, nor can he. Why can he not? Why is he not able to? Again, is it because his brain doesn't work as well as the Christian brain? No. He cannot because he will not. This is the testimony of Scripture. This is why our flesh is of no help at all. Not because we don't have functioning brains, but because there is something wrong with our hearts. In Romans 1.18, we read that man by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The unbeliever's flesh, he in his natural state, using his natural faculties, suppresses the truth. It's not that Christianity is irrational. It is that he is irrational. But it's not that he is irrational because his brain doesn't work properly. He is irrational because his heart doesn't work properly. He doesn't like what the Bible says about him and his relationship to God. He doesn't like what the Bible says about Jesus in his person and in his work. And so he draws conclusions to suit himself and then goes back to find premises that support his pre-drawn Conclusions. Remember the words of the Apostle Peter that scoffers deliberately overlook facts. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. This, and that, pardon me, and further, that their scoffing follows their own sinful desires. So it is sinful desires that lead to scoffing. This is how the unbeliever reasons in religious matters. He draws his conclusions first and then goes back to find premises or supporting argumentation to bolster his conclusions. This is why it is. I'm drawing on other texts, but I'm drawing on other texts to help us understand here what Jesus means when he says the flesh is of no help at all. Well, why is the flesh of no help at all? Are we to go out in evangelism and tell people that they're not as smart as us? By no means. Are we to go out in our evangelism and tell people, stop thinking and just take a leap in the dark? By no means. We're not to tell them, stop using your brain because your brain's part of your flesh and the flesh is no help at all. Just believe. By no means. What we are to do in evangelism is to tell people that they have a problem which is a sinful orientation away from God towards suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And because of that deadness, there is a turning away from God and a blindness to spiritual things. And that is why the flesh is of no help at all. What is the solution then? Jesus saying that the flesh is of no help at all tells us that the Spirit must give life. The reference here is not to the human spirit, since the human spirit can't give itself life any more than the human body can give itself life. The reference here is not to the human spirit, 
but to the Holy Spirit. God Himself must intervene in the dullness and deadness of heart, which suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. God Himself must change a person so that He agrees with the Bible's assessment of Him and His standing before God. God Himself must change a person so that He likes what the Bible says about the person and the work of Christ Jesus. God Himself must change a person so that He no longer rejects the testimony of Jesus, like, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a bridge too far. God Himself must change a person so that He no longer rejects the testimony of Jesus, but receives it. Yes, He is the bread of life. Yes, He is greater than Moses. Yes, He is greater than all of the prophets. All of the scriptures testify to Him. Yes, the means by which He will give life to the world is by the offering up of His flesh. And yes, I need to eat. And yes, I need to drink. God Himself must change a person so that He no longer follows Jesus only to a point and then turns away, but so that He follows the Lamb whithersoever he goes. Look at verse 65. And Jesus said, This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Without that work of God, people in their natural state are not oriented toward Christ. We'll not find the bread of life enticing, appealing. They will not salivate for the bread of life, but by the work of God. They will not eat of Christ's flesh, drink of Christ's blood. They will not believe apart from an intervening work of God. So Jesus intensifies his claims, identifies their unbelief, and identifies the source of their unbelief. What bearing does all of this have on our lives here in the 21st century? For one thing, we should recognize that there is a kind of unbelief that masquerades as belief. Jesus calls some of those who have been following him unbelievers. Are you that kind of unbeliever? Are you willing to follow Jesus a certain amount? Once it gets a little uncomfortable, once Jesus says some things that don't immediately make sense to you, perplex you a little bit, bother you a little bit, you're ready to reject what he says. You're ready to take, follow Jesus some distance, but not the whole way. Are you that kind of unbeliever that looks like a believer 
professes to be a believer. But at a certain point, you're not ready to believe beyond that point. Second, we should recognize that unbelief stems not from intellectual incapacity, but from moral incapacity. Are you an unbeliever telling yourself that the Christian life is just not rational enough for you? The Christian faith, pardon me, is not just rational enough for you. If so, take a closer look. You are not neutral. Your flesh, including your natural mind, is of no help to you in religious matters. Because in your sin, you are prejudiced against the truth of Christianity. This is why the flesh is of no help at all. Jesus is telling you here in this passage why it is that you don't believe. The problem lies in you. The words that He's spoken are spirit and life. There's no problem with that. They're the means by which He gives life. They contain spiritual truths. The Spirit of God is not impotent. The problem is your flesh. Your natural self. The flesh is of no help at all. Jesus tells you here in this passage, unbeliever, why it is that you do not believe. And it's because of the prejudice of your flesh against God. You need a work of God in your heart to bring you to faith. In the hands of the Spirit of God, Would these words of life be instrumental even today in convincing you of that and bringing you to faith in Christ Jesus that you would be honest for the first time? That yes, up until now you have been at enmity with God. Would you heed the wooing, the drawing of the Holy Spirit in bringing you to faith? Acknowledging the incapacity of your flesh, but yielding to the Spirit of God and coming in faith to believe savingly in Christ Jesus. Third, a reminder we Christians may always profit from. We are not Christians because our flesh was stronger than the flesh of another who did not believe. The flesh is of how much help? No help at all. So Christian, be reminded that you are not a Christian because your flesh helped you more than someone else's flesh did not avail them. The Spirit gave life to us. There are not some people who contributed like 1% to our salvation and some people who contributed 4%. And then the spiritual giants among us who who invested and contributed 9% or 11%. The flesh is of no help at all. Christian, unless the Spirit had given you life, 
you would be just as dead in your trespasses and sins as the unbelievers around you. May this make us and keep us ever humble before God and before our fellow man. We are no better by nature than anyone else. Look at the vilest sinner outside of Christ Jesus today. There go I, but for the grace of God. If you have eaten and drunk of Christ, as John 6 has been teaching us, it is because you were given by the Father to the Son. It is because you were drawn by God that you came in faith and now have this hope that you will be raised up by Christ Jesus on the last day. It is due to God's work in you that you came in faith to the one greater than Moses the source of eternal life, who gave His flesh as bread for the life of the world. And so to God be the glory. The Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Some Christians sometimes seem to forget our frame. And we forget to remember that we are dust. Truths like this help remind us we are but dust. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved.